Well, it's lovely to hear those conversations. And can I invite you to continue them after our time up here over a coffee downstairs. We are going to be reading from the end of the book of Job today and then from uh, the book of Isaiah. So please join me in reading God's word, starting at Job 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I'll accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Amathite, did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again, and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Keran Hupuk. Nowhere in the land were they found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died old and full of years. And then flicking over to Isaiah chapter 52 starting at verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, 
smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's see whether my mic is working. Yes, Okay, good. Uh, yes, hopefully you have understood where I'm going just by the readings there. The fact that we've drawn the end of Job and Isaiah, basically Isaiah 53 together, uh, that will explain why I've given the title of this sermon, Job, the Suffering Servant. Now, Nathan said, you, I know you lecture and you can kind of keep this in lecture mode. No, you do not want that completely in lecture mode. The lecture is 37 pages long. You're not getting that. A lot of stuff cut out. But I'm going to try and also just give it more of a sermon feel too and take it towards some application for us at the end. What does this mean for us? So we, um, we read those passages. Now, a bit about me. Apparently, the Lord has given me a spiritual gift and it is a spiritual gift of confusing people. Um, it's true. It's true. Often when people ask me a question about the Bible, I say, it's much more complicated than you thought. And then I go on to explain that complicated stuff, and the poor soul is left more confused than ever before. I'll try not to do that today. Um, today, I'm actually going to step out of character, and I'm going to try and, um, at least for a few minutes, and I'm trying to simplify rather than complicate the book of Job. In fact, before that, I'm actually going to simplify the whole Bible. I'm going to reduce the whole storyline of the Bible down to three words. You ready? The Bible, three words, good, bad, better. That's it. You now know the Bible. Think about it. The Bible story begins with the good of being in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin, and that begins the bad part of the Bible story. Pretty well, the rest of the whole Bible, um, or so much of the Bible, a story of sin and death and suffering and misery. That's the bad that we all know about. But the Bible holds out hope for a better, not just a good, but a better that to end the world's story. In fact, that's the age to come. 
the age of resurrection, the age of eternal life, it will be incomprehensibly better than where we began in the Garden of Eden. Same pattern. You can find it in the story of uh, Israel. The story begins in the good of life in the promised land of Canaan. But Israel's idolatry, history of idolatry and refusing to follow the Lord, ultimately sends them into the bad of exile in Babylon. But even while they're in exile in Babylon, prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah look forward to that better time where the Lord would bring Israel back from the bad of Babylonian exile, bring them back to the promised land and do all these wonderful things for them so that their condition at the end of exile, after exile, would be much, much better than it was when he first took them into the promised land. Good, bad, better in Israel's story, but you can find that pattern also in other smaller sections of the Bible. Take Psalm 23. It's a good example. The story begins in the good of green pastures, sheep eating grass and drinking water. But then it moves into the bad of life under threat, the bad of the valley of the shadow of death there in verse 4 of Psalm 23. But in that climax, that little mini narrative that is Psalm 23, the good of grass and water gives way to the better of a banquet table and overflowing wine in the house of the Lord, good, bad, better. And that final picture of the house of the Lord, the banquet table, is a powerful image, once again, of life in the age to come. But I'm going to suggest to you that Job belong, has the same three-part pattern of good, bad, and better. The good phase of Job's life, all you get is just five verses there at the beginning. And what you have there is that standard Old Testament uh, indicators of the blessed life. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. Success, good stuff. Then begins that protracted, that long bad period of Job's life, almost the whole book. Uh, it begins with the systematic loss of all the oxen and donkeys and camels and so forth. And most significantly, the death of his seven sons and three daughters. And from there through to chapter 42, Isaiah suffers, a, sorry, not Isaiah, Job suffers a living death, made worse, of course, by the accusations of his wife, then his three and ultimately four friends, and the way that everyone just basically abandons him. Abandonment and accusation, just making his, his experience of the bad even worse. But the turning point in the narrative, that transition from Job's experience of the bad to the better comes in verse 10 of chapter 42, which Nathan has just read for us. The Lord restored the fortunes, Job's fortunes, and gave him twice as much as he had, be had before. Now, let's take a quick look at this final phase of Job's life. First, it's more than just a restoration of what he had in the, at the beginning. If his, if his initial situation was positive, then we can call his uh, new situation, his final situation, his final condition, a positive plus or a positive times two because his new condition is mathematically defined by a doubling of all that he had. 
uh, what did he originally had? 7,000 sheep. Now he's got 14,000 sheep. And you can go through the camels and the donkeys and the oxen. They're all double the number. Sending the message, this is better, twice as good as it was at the beginning. Slight awkwardness, of course, he picked this one up. He still is in this, in this new age that he enters into. He's given, what is it, seven sons and three daughters. They're not, they're not doubled, as it were, but there's, a, there's at least an idea of replacement of the original lost or uh, dead sons and daughters. That's a little bit awkward, I know. Perhaps uh, the idea might be the original sons and daughters might still have had a continued existence, life after death. And these uh, new set of sons and daughters were an addition to those ones who were in some sense still alive, although they had passed on. Well, because of the way this good, bad, better pattern is used throughout the Bible, I want to suggest that these final verses in Job do more than just give us a picture of the climax of Job's life. They also function as prophecy that gives us an Old Testament picture of the age to come. So what I'm doing here with, with Job, as kind of Nathan hinted, I'm not just reading as a book of wisdom. Yes, it is that, but I'm also reading as a book of prophecy. And this ending of Job is actually sets out in some interesting ways a vision of, an, a very Israelite vision of what life in the age to come would look like. So hold that thought and I'll come back to that one in a minute. So what I've just done is I've pulled out a long thread, long thick thread from Job Let's leave it hanging there while I try to pull out some more threads and then hopefully tie them all together at the end. So we're going to need to come back to this question of uh, the righteousness of Job's. Now, if I recall correctly, and hopefully I'm right here, Nathan, uh, the book presents Job as righteous all the way through. Yes, good. I was listening to that part of the sermon. That's encouraging. Uh, and I agree with Nathan. So we're two are gathered together and agree, obviously, we're right. Uh, it's important... It's important to understand that in the Old Testament, okay, this is important, that righteousness does not mean sinlessness. To simplify, it means, what does it mean to be, be righteous? It means to not worship idols, to keep the Lord God's law. And when you sin, what you do is you truly repent, or you repent from your heart, and then you offer up sacrifices to deal with your sin. And if that's what you do, then you're a righteous person. And that's what Job is. The first verse of the book puts it this way, Job, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That's Job from the beginning, verses 8 and later on. You'll find that same statement made about Job in a number of places. And I think that assessment of Job holds all the way through the book. Now, you might object. You say, well, at the end, we read this passage. Nathan read this passage. He, he repents on dust and ashes, and that proves that he's unrighteous. No, in the Old Testament, as I just said, willingness to repent is in fact a sign of righteousness. As David says, Psalm 51, God looks with favor on a broken and a contrite heart. And that's what you see Job doing there as he repents. I, I, I repent on dust and ashes. That's the broken and the contrite heart. And that is, that, that's exactly what Job is showing there in that story. So even though, yes, he said things that were probably inappropriate, nonetheless, he, the final and the definitive assessment of Job all the way through is that he's righteous. Another thread I've just pulled out, Job is not perfect. He's righteous. 
He's in right relationship with God. Now, that's going to lead to the next question, a question we've pondered before. Why is he suffering? Now, if Job is righteous, why suffer? Deuteronomy said, if you're righteous, if you follow the Lord, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey the law, if you disobey, if you follow idolatry, you'll be cursed. So everything just doesn't look right here, does it? His, his, Job's three friends have got an answer to that question. Why, Job, are you suffering? And they say, well, you're obviously experiencing God's punishment. That means you're not righteous because God is judging you. But that can't be the right answer because Job is in fact righteous. That means their answer to the problem of his suffering is incorrect. So why does he suffer? Well, you kind of think we'll get an answer somewhere. We'll get an answer when the Lord comes along. He'll explain that, chapters 38 to 42. And Job, the Lord comes along but never explains to Job why he's been suffering. Um, in essence, he says, Job, my ways, my plans are far above you. And then how does Job respond? Well, he hum humbly admits. He says, I spoke of things I didn't understand, things that are too wonderful for me. So what that means is you get to the end of Job and you're still asking this question, why did this righteous man suffer? And that gets no answer. Job is left in the dark. We, the readers, are left in the dark. Or are we? Now, Job may not have known the reason for his suffering, but I think the readers of the book, us, we're given a big hint as to why Job suffered. Now, the key, I think, is in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 42. Nathan read them, but they're important verses, so I'll read them again. Chapter 42, 7 to 9. After the Lord said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you. Now hear that. I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job. This is important. We'll pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. Folly is a strong word. You've acted not just foolishly, you've acted like atheists is essentially what that word means. I'm not going to treat you in that way. Why? Because I'm going to, Job's going to pray for you. So you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Hear that phrase a number of times now. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shilhite and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now I want to suggest then that what's happened is that Job's suffering has made him fit to act as an intercessor, someone who will plead on their behalf before God. It's made him fit to be an intercessor, to intercede on behalf of those who are the objects of God's wrath. God, Job's punishment is not suffering, but it is suffering. It's not, sorry, it's suffering. It's not punishment. But it's suffering that in some way qualifies him to save those who are facing the consequences of God's anger. It's interesting that in this passage that I just read, the Lord calls Job my servant on a number of occasions. I've tried to bring that out. 
phrase uh, also occurs in Isaiah 53, as we read that as well. Um, Isaiah 53, actually the last couple of verses of Isaiah 52 and into Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the chapter that describes the experience of this strange person called the suffering servant, the man whose who's suffering placed him in the role of an intercessor for his people, the man who foreshadowed the sufferings of Jesus. When Job is called my servant by the Lord, it's one of only a number of connections that are made that we can make between Job and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. There are actually numerous connections, verbal connections. I'll just mention three to make the point. Um, Job's friends, they see his suffering as evidence that he's being punished by God. Job, why are you suffering? Well, you're guilty. You're being suffering because God is punishing you. But that's really similar to what Isaiah says about the suffering servant. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God. Same thing. We esteemed him. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Another one. Job says that he's suffering even though his hands have been free of violence. That's in Job 16, 17. In a similar way, the servant of Isaiah 53 is assigned a grave with the wicked, though it says, though he had done no violence. And we heard that being read as well. No violence with either Job or the suffering servant. One more. Uh, Job says that when people looked at him, they were appalled, Job 17.8. Same way, the appearance of Isaiah's suffering servant was so disfigured that many were appalled at him. So these connections, these echoes between the two texts invite us to interpret Job as an illustration of the suffering servant. This, this connection between Job and the suffering servant can be made even stronger when we compare Job 42 verse 8 with the final verse of Isaiah 53. In Job, the Lord says, my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. In a similar, actually much more developed way, at the end of Isaiah 53, we hear that the servant made intercession for the transgressors. Very significant similarity between Job and the suffering servant here. Interceding on behalf of those with whom God is angry. And of course, just as the suffering servant predicts, points forward to the suffering and the intercession of Jesus on our behalf, the same is true for Job. And because of these parallels between Isaiah 53 and Job, when we see Job praying for his friends, we also get, and I'll admit this, it's a faint picture of Christ's intercession on our behalf. In fact, Job's prayer on behalf of his friends finds an echo, doesn't it, in Jesus' prayer for those for whom, those who crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ interceding for those that God is angry with. Same thing that happens with Job. So while Job is never told why he suffered, once we read the book's conclusion and hear those echoes with Isaiah 53, we begin to understand that his suffering is neither arbitrary nor pointless, 
but is ultimately for the benefit of those with whom God is angry. Job's perseverance through suffering has actually confirmed his righteousness and qualified him to act, uh, to intercede on behalf of his companions, who incidentally never interceded for him. They just accused him. But he intercedes for them nonetheless. Um, so they, here we see him, Job, here actually it's, it's this faint picture of Jesus, a picture of Jesus faintly drawn, but still a picture of a man who through his suffering has saved us from the consequences of God's righteous anger. It's a picture of the one who even now intercedes for us before God in heaven. Now, let's come back to where I began with this good, bad, better pattern in Job. And I've already noted that the turning point from the bad to the better comes in 42 verse 10. The Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. We took that quick look at the positive times two phase of Job's life, the doubling of the original blessings, his lengthened life, rather than living to 70, he gets 140, it's very important, it's 140 more years that he gets. That doubles the ordinary length of, of life, uh, 70 years, you'll find that in Psalm, uh, Psalm 90. And I suggested that coming after Job's intercession that saves his friends, this final section of the book actually gives us an Old Testament vision of the age to come, the age of resurrection. It's as if Job has opened up his intercession for his friends, his suffering and his intercession has opened up this new world, this new ending, this a picture of the age to come. So the story which began with the death of Job's children now reaches its final scene with the birth of a new set of sons and daughters from death to birth. Job's lengthened life then will be an early hint that the age to come will reverse the mortality that has infected humanity since the fall. 140 years, but that's pointing forward to this whole, whole idea that in the age to come, life will go on longer than was normal in this age. One last point about the conclusion of Job. Lots of things I could say here. They're in the lecture. One last point, though, about the conclusion of Job before I make kind of a brief application from this book. Um, 42, Chapter 42, verse 11 gives us an odd bit of information. All his brothers, this is after he's been restored, all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before he came, before him, who had known him before, came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble, literally all the bad in the Hebrew, all the bad that he, that the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Yay, that's kind of weird information, isn't it? Now, we go across to Isaiah chapter 25. Um, that chapter sets out the prophet Isaiah's vision of the age to come. And what Isaiah says there in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 25, the age to come will begin with this great banquet, this banquet that will celebrate the dawning of the new creation. Psalm 23 does something similar. In verse 5, Psalm 23 describes the age to come using the image of a banquet table. And here as well, in Job's vision of the resurrection age, we have another banquet scene. Now we see Job surrounded by his family and friends 
celebrating his release from suffering and his enjoyment of God's double blessings. But why are we told that everyone present gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring? Well, apparently, these are tokens of a restored relationship. Uh, the family and the friends who had abandoned, abandoned, even scorned and accused Job are now welcome to his banquet table. He's forgiven them. And of course, that's a picture of how we who once abandoned and scorned Jesus Christ, but are now forgiven, will feast with him on the day when the new creation begins. Hopefully you can see where I'm going. At least the Church of Christ folks will. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. We will do that in celebration of the restored relationship that we have with Jesus, made possible by his suffering for us and his intercession for us. We'll also eat together in joyful anticipation of the day when Jesus returns and we will gather around his great banquet table to celebrate at last the dawning of the age of double blessing, when our lives will be lengthened not just by 140 years, but lengthened into eternity. And we will bring to Jesus, well, not gold rings, but we'll bring our worship to him, our response of gratitude to him for his intercession, his suffering on our behalf. So Job points us forward to Jesus. That's been the burden of my, what I've been trying to get across here. But can he also help us think about how we should live as Christians? Well, that question takes us to um, James chapter 5, verse 11. Here James is asking how Christians should deal with suffering. And then in verse, um, I think it's yes, verse 11, he says, As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Now, those of you who grew up with the King James Bible, my generation, uh, might recall the, here that uh, the King James translates the Greek as, you've heard about the patience of Job. And in fact, that phrase has come into English to describe a very passive emotion. Just being able to put up with a hard situation or hard or annoying people without complaining. The problem with that translation, though, is that Job was not particularly patient. It's fair to say he actually complained quite a lot. So I think the point that James is making is brought out much better by the modern versions, which translate the Greek to refer to Job's perseverance, his endurance, his steadfastness. Patience refers to your emotional state during difficult times, but endurance and perseverance refer to your commitment to complete a task. Or in Job's case, endurance refers to his commitment to hold fast to his God no matter what. I can illustrate this from Job's interaction with his wife. After the loss of all his possessions and the death of his children, the Lord allows Satan to inflict uh, Job with painful sores from the top of his head to, the, to his feet, down to his feet. At this point, Job's wife has had enough. So in Job chapter 2, verse 9, she says, says to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? She actually still believes that he has integrity, that he's righteous. Curse God and die. Now, unlike Job's friends, she doesn't tell him to repent. 
She knows Job well, and she agrees, yes, he is righteous. Therefore, God is treating him unfairly. So her counsel to Job is, abandon this God. He's given up on you, so you should give up on him. In fact, curse him and die. Job's response is a model, though, of endurance. He rejects his wife's virtual atheism. He calls her foolish. You're acting, you're talking as if there's no God. He proclaims then whether, whether God sends to him good or trouble, literally good or bad, he will accept it. Okay, not without complaint, not without confusion, not without anger, but he will accept whatever comes along and will maintain his loyal commitment and not give up on God. And that's his story all the way through his suffering. suffering. Complaint, confusion, yes, but endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. Notice what James says. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Now, James is not only reminding us that Job held fast to God, even when it appeared that God had abandoned him. He's also pointing to Job chapter 42, what the Lord brought about, what the Lord finally brought about. What that's referring to is the better ending of Job's story. In other words, despite appearances of the contrary, the Lord was always holding on to Job, always working to bring his story to its positive conclusion. That's true for us as well, isn't it? We have seen what the Lord will finally bring about. We've read Job's story as a picture of where we're, we're going. We know the story of Jesus, that God brought him to resurrection. And that is our story as well. We know where the final ending of our story. And we know because of that, that God has not let us go. All through whatever we go through in life, all the suffering, even the times when we feel as though God is silent and he's abandoned us, he's still there working our lives, holding on to us to bring us to that better conclusion at the end of our lives and in the age to come. So even as James calls us to live lives marked by endurance, staying power, or to word, use a word my mother used to, word, used to use, stickability, sticking on to the Lord, uh, even as he uses those words to describe the way we are to follow Jesus. Of course, Jesus himself, by the way, showed even more endurance than we could ever muster up when he faced the agony of the cross. And when James points us in that direction and calls on us to endure, he points us to God's role in holding on to Job, holding on to Job so that Job would stay on track and be faithful to the end. In other words, like Job, and even more like Jesus, no matter what the circumstances, we are called to persevere in our faith and obedience to God. We are called to hold fast to him, but with the good news that as we hold fast to him, our God is holding fast to us. Let's pray. Our Father, like Job, we admit that we often find your ways and your plans hard to comprehend. We confess that at times we are frustrated and angry when your plans for our lives don't fit with our plans for our lives. So help us to rest quietly in both your sovereign power and in your goodness. And through life's trials, would you give us a clear vision of the better that lies ahead for us, the a better, better 
than Job experienced that longing for the day we have when at last our faith will be turned to sight and will be raised with Christ to endless life. Give us this vision, Lord. May it sustain us in our days, in the days that lie ahead. And this we pray in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.